Just a wonderful hymn for us once again before we go to our study in John 17. We're almost out of John chapter 17, but not yet. Not yet. The title of my message this morning is Unity, Not Conformity. Unity, not conformity. Now, conformity can be used in different ways. And the way I will use it will be in a negative way. Because we want unity. We do not want conformity. We find that a few times in this prayer of our Lord that he prays that his people would be one. That they would be one. So in that sense, Jesus prays for unity that they may all be one. We see that in verse 11. We see that in verse 21. We do not find a prayer for conformity. And conformity in this way being defined as a process whereby people change their beliefs, attitudes, and actions or perceptions to more closely match those held by groups to which they belong or want to belong to or by groups whose approval they desire. That's conforming. That's from Britannica. The word can also be used by a group or a church, let's say, that wrongly assumes someone has to meet certain criteria to be accepted in their quote-unquote crowd. Like a grown-up version of high school drama with cliques, Desiring only for those who look like them, dress like them, act like them, to be a part of them. That's desiring people to be conformed to something. We find quite the opposite in a church. We should find quite the opposite in a local church. We all come from different backgrounds. We all look differently. Come from different walks of life and circumstances where we all are on a level playing field at the foot of the cross, all accountable to God, and the only conforming is a positive one, conforming our lives to Jesus Christ by his grace. As we continue to study Jesus' farewell address, farewell prayer, here in John 17, it's very applicable to our lives today. And I'll ask the Lord for his help again before I preach his word. Father, again, I ask for the help of the Holy Spirit of God. I have been prayed for. I have uh, prayed for this myself, O Lord. We must rely on the Holy Spirit. I must rely on the Holy Spirit. Cause me to be an empty vessel for your use, for your glory this day. And use me in a mighty way this day. In Jesus' name I pray and ask. Amen. Since Jesus prays for believers of today as well, this prayer, this portion specifically, is for us as well. Jesus begins with a prayer of his own consecration. We have looked at that. We have studied that. Verse Uh, 1 through verse 5, 
Then he prays for his first disciples specifically, and we saw applications for us as well, verse 6 through 19. Then Jesus concludes his prayer with petitions specifically for the church that will follow for generations, for the remainder of this age. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their work. Let that sink into your minds this morning. If you remember nothing else, or if nothing else sinks in this morning, let this sink deep. On the night of his arrest, Jesus prayed specifically for you and for me as part of his church, if indeed you belong to him. This is hours before he was tortured, marred beyond recognition of man, and before he was crucified. This is not something that was just thought of by the Lord on that night. Remember the Good Shepherd Discourse in John chapter 10, where Jesus says in verse 14, I am the Good Shepherd, and I have known my own, and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me, I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And in verse 16, he says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. They will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And that indeed is the case. And that indeed who is who he prays for in John 17. He prays for his people, those for whom he would die for. The particular atonement, the definite atonement. Our first point, very, very simply for us, believe in Christ. Believe in Christ. But for those also who believe in me through their word is who he prays for. He prays not only for the apostles, not only for these first disciples, but also for others. The others who believe in me, in Jesus, that's who he prays for. Again, remember, he does not pray for the world, but for those who the Father has given to the Son. That is who he prays for. They believe in him through their word. This is the instrument of how they will believe by the Holy Spirit through their word. The phrase your word is mentioned two times at least in previous verses close by. And then your word, meaning the Father's words. Now we have Jesus saying their word. Uh, the NIV says their message, their, their whole message of what they are proclaiming. Jesus, just by way of recap, is praying for believers, other than the apostles at this point, those who will believe in him. How do they believe is the question. The answer is through their word. Whose word? is the question. The answer is, by believing the word of God as given through the apostles of Jesus Christ. 
the very word of God that we have laid before us or should have laid before us this morning. Again, this circles back to the importance of the word of God as the instrument, as the means, as his, the sacred text that he has given us. Qu- question. What are the instruments God uses to cause people to believe, to draw men and women to himself? Well, the world would say today, or even some modern churches would say today, other things other than the preaching of the word of God, other things other than the text of Scripture, other things than the Holy Spirit. We'll use these ways instead. But no, the answer is he He uses the teaching and preaching of His Word to grow His church. That has not changed and that will not change. Does the Lord Jesus Christ or the Apostle Paul or Peter tell us that people will believe in Him, in Christ, because of us being nice to them? No. Should we be nice? Yes. There's times when we are to be nice. Absolutely. Nice people. Does the Bible teach that the way people will believe in Christ is by being invited to church or joining a church? No. Should we invite people to church? Yes. Should someone who say they're a Christian join the local church? Absolutely yes and amen. Does the Bible teach that we are to be relevant and be sure to meet all, all carnal and worldly expectations of lost people so that they will fall in love with Jesus? No. Jesus says they will believe in him through the word of God. God gives us minds to understand the gospel. Remember Romans chapter 12. Renewing of our mind, which is daily for the Christian. It's an ongoing, present tense activity that we should partake in. Renewing our mind in the Word of God. God gives us these minds to understand the gospel. He gives us hearts on fire for His gospel. He gives us a tongue to proclaim His gospel. And the Holy Spirit of God to stand firm on the gospel. But oftentimes we have excuses, do we not? If he's given us a mind to understand his word, a mind to understand his gospel, specifically we say, well, I'm not a big reader. Well, if he's given you the ability to read and he's given you his word as the primary means to grow you, as we covered last time, you should be a big reader and so should I. The least of the word of God, first and foremost. Often we have excuses as well. We're supposed to have a heart for his gospel. But oftentimes we find that idols are more important in our lives. We have a tongue to proclaim his gospel. But oftentimes we're caught up in gossip, sarcasm, and armchair quarterbacking. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling. But we can instead quench the spirit with worldly attributes and attitudes and endeavors. 
that should not even be named among us. And the point is, is that the means that God uses to grow his, his people and the means God uses for those to believe in Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit is the very word of God. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22. I'll just read it for us this morning through 25. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all of its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls off, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word which was preached to you. 1 Peter, reminder for us on Sunday evenings as we concluded that study. And we'll be going to, Lord willing, 2 Peter this evening. This is the word preached to you, and this is the way. This is the instrument that God uses to redeem lost sinners. Don't we see this as well in Romans, which we have been reminded of uh, a few times at least recently, unless it was in my own mind. Romans chapter 10, that if you confess with your mouth, verse 9, that Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That has not changed. That will not change. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved today if they do. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? And the question is, what does the preacher do? He preaches the word of God, the instrument used in our lives. And how will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, the, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. However, they did not all heed the good news for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And here's the text for us. Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We could paraphrase that and say, faith comes from hearing and hearing by a message about Jesus Christ exposited from the word of God. Once again, the text of scripture. So we have in verse 20 of John 17, the elect are those who will believe in Christ's word. You really have to play dodgeball with the text all over the place to not see the doctrine of election in the scripture. It's all over the place. I think it was Steve Lawson who said, it's not hard to believe, it's hard to swallow. Consider John 5, 24. He, Jesus says, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me will believe him who sent me. Those are who are the believers in Christ, who hears his word and believes on him. 
So first, we have believe in Christ. Secondly, united in Christ. United in Christ. There's many things that this world says to be united in today, right? Be united in this, united in that. And sometimes the world has a very good way of marketing such things. Wanting people to parrot one thing or say one thing or another. I read something recently that wasn't a worldly thing. It was online. It was about a question someone was asking about Reformed theology and Calvinists, she said. It was a question, why, why, does it, why do so many people think that uh, people who believe who are Reformed uh, have no joy? And why do they always talk about God's wrath? And da 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 Just asking genuine questions. And the answer to that, really, from my perspective, the answer that I gave was that that is a, a, a stereotype and something that is parroted and something that is learned. Because if we truly know the doctrines of grace, if we truly know about the wrath of God, it should cause us to have great joy because what we have been saved from. And knowing we had nothing to do with it. And it brings us back to the doctrine of election. So it's really the opposite of what she was saying is true. We should have great joy. Nevertheless, united in Christ, verse 21, that they may all be one even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Main focus here is, is unity in these verses. Unity. It's similar to verse 23. I in them and you in me, that they have me, may be perfected in unity. They all be one compared to you, and Father are in me, and I in you. This does not mean that this unity between the Father and the Son is the exact same between us and the Lord. This is stated by way of analogy to push an emphasis upon us. The two are one yet distinct. The goal being that they may believe in in us, or in the Trinity, the Father and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that they may believe that the Father sent the Son, which is of high importance in the Gospel of John and is of high importance in general for us. John 3.16, God so loved the world that he sent his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That all may be one. This is unity. We have to understand what this unity means and how it looks. Sometimes we find that people will cry out, unity, unity. But they'll be the first ones to be divisive within a local church. And be the first ones to leave a local church. After they cry for such unity. And then they'll end up being the ones who cause disunity. So we ask, what kind of, of unity? It's a great question. And Dr. James Boyce gives a good answer. He talks about or writes about the worst period in church history were the strongest of institutional unity. Oftentimes, consider that. And oftentimes when you talk to people who are lost or people who may be uh, ignorant of things of Christianity will say, well, why are there so many denominations? 
That'll be one of the first questions. Why are there Baptists? Why are there Presbyterians? Why are there this and this and this? Why can't they all just be one? The question is, what kind of unity is this to be? This important preliminary question. One thing is for sure. The church is not to be, says uh, Dr. Boyce, is not to be a great organizational unity. For whatever advantages or disadvantages may be involved in massive organizational unity, this in itself obviously does not produce the results Christ prayed for, nor does it solve the church's other great problems. Moreover, it has been tried and found wanting. In the early days of the church, there was much vitality and growth, but little organizational unity. Later, as the church came to favor under Constantine and his successors, that's a name uh, many of us are familiar with, the church increasingly centralized during the Middle Ages. And there was literally one united ecclesiastical body covering all of Europe. But was this a great age, he asks? Was there deep unity of faith? Did men and women find themselves increasingly drawn to this faith and come to confess Jesus Christ to be their Savior and Lord? Not at all. On the contrary, the world believed the opposite. Spurgeon once wrote, The world was persuaded that God had nothing to do with that great, crushing, tyrannous, superstitious, ignorant thing which called itself Christianity. And thinking men, become, men became infidels, it was the hardest possible thing to find genuine, intelligent believers north, south, east, or west. Certainly there's something to be said for some form of, of outward visible unity, at least in most situations. But it is equally certain that this type of unity is not what we need, nor is it what the Lord prayed for. End quote. So that would be conformity. One world united under one scope, one world religion, as we like to, to talk about. There's another type of um, unwanted unity called conformity. An approach that would make everyone alike. Do we need order? Yes. Uniformity, all conformed together as one? No. There is great diversity among Christians, personalities, giftings, interests, talents, abilities. There are things that we unite on and there are things we simply cannot unite on. And one thing for sure is we're not to be ecumenical in the sense of the word where it is used negatively. Martin Lloyd-Jones had something to say about this a generation ago, which still rings true today. He says, I suppose that if there is one thing that characterizes true life of the church and of Christian people more than anything else in this particular generation, it is the interest in what is called ecumenicalism. We are constantly reading about it, and conferences and meetings are being held almost without intermission with respect to it. To be ecumenical is when professing Christians lock arms with those who oppose what the Bible teaches. Clear teaching. The teachings of Jesus Christ. We do not lock arms with nor seek unity with the world, 
as Christians, nor do we with false religions. We understand that, for example, Catholicism is a false religious system that is in complete contrast to biblical Christianity. We do not form spiritual alliances with doctrines of demons. I give a practical example for us when some of us go evangelizing to specific places. Oftentimes there's Catholics around as well. Do we say, hey, great, we're all here for the same cause? No, it's a public sidewalk. I'm going to be respectful to you. I'm going to be kind to you. We're going to talk. We're going to engage. But we're not here for the same. We're not, we do not believe the same thing. And let others know that in the world, that we believe differently. We do not lock arms with Catholics. The same is with the cults, such as Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons, which we have been discussing on Wednesday nights. Both of these groups have dangerous false teachings, as we learned. We do not form alliances with cults. The Mormon is not our brother. So what is this unity? This is the, the unity that Jesus is speaking of, that he's praying of. It's, it's the unity of the Spirit. And we see this expressed in Scripture in two main ways, a body and a family. Let's first look at 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Don't worry, I'm not getting into tongues and the interpretation of tongues this, this morning. I know it's a disappointment to some of you. Some of you are saying, thankfully so, he's not. That it would be a longer discussion and there is, it's clear in scripture. We are cessationists in our understanding here, or ought to be. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 4 through 6. We're thinking of two, two analogies, excuse me. The body and the family. The body and the family. Here we have the body. Uh, chapter 12, verse 4 through 6. I'll just read that. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same spirit. Okay? Varieties of giftings that we have within the local church, but the same spirit, the, the Holy Spirit of God. Variety of ministries, but the same Lord. Varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. Now go down to verse 12. For even as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, through though they are many, are one body, so also in Christ. And then let's continue on here. Let's consider this body and how Paul uses this here. For by one spirit, verse 13, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free. We were all made to drink of one spirit. For the body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, because I'm not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less part of the body. And if the ear says, because I'm not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, 
where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And remember, when Paul's writing to this, he's writing to the local church at Corinth. So as an application, we say, Grace Covenant Church, how does this apply to us as the body of believers? Verse 19, if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Or again, to the, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that all the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. Necessary. And those members, verse 23, those members of the body which we deem less honorable and these which we bestow more abundant honor and our less presentable members become more presentable Whereas our more presentable members have no need of it, but God has so composed the body, given more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. Verse 26, if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Consider that and consider how we are to serve one another, love one another, use the giftings God has given us for the Lord, united in the Lord. One body, many members. Richard Phillips says, Christian unity involves an organic oneness of service and sympathy. Also, this unity is also described as a spiritual family. We are children of God. We are brothers and sisters in Christ, adopted into the family of God. Those who were adopted can't say to their parents who adopted them that, hey, you're adopting me and that's all there is to it. No, those parents chose that child. Considering that analogy, the same is true here. God adopts those into his family, the family of God. Ephesians chapter 1. I invite you to turn there if you wouldn't mind, please. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4 and 5. As we consider, again, this unity that Jesus is praying for, for Christians, we see the unity described as a body. First um, Corinthians chapter 12, as we are to interact and serve the Lord together, and everyone has their giftings, and everyone's giftings that have been given to them by God are important. And then we see us being described as a spiritual family. We are children of God, brothers and sisters in Christ, adopted into the family of God. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as he chose us, there's that choosing again. Doctrine of election strikes again here in Ephesians. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him in love. In verse 5, there's another key word 
He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. It all had to do with God. And as we studied in John 17, the covenant of redemption. And here we are. And he has chosen us and adopted us as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. For the reason, verse 6, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. And then chapter 4, one verse from there, or a few verses, since we're here in Ephesians, go over to chapter 4 for a moment. Again, we're united as one body. We are one family. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling for which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve what? To preserve what? Preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So we're united in one body, united in one spiritual family, and we are united in truth. Truth, which brings us back once again to the importance, the necessity of the Word of God, the Holy Scriptures. We're never to set aside truth to gain unity. That is one thing the Christian cannot do. Our Christian unity in truth requires us to believe the Bible, our Christian unity and truth requires us to believe in sola scriptura, scripture alone, not adding to the Bible. If you do not believe in sola scriptura, you're in company, in bad company, with Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Our Christian unity and truth makes it a requirement to discern essential and non-negotiable doctrines from those that are non-essential to unity. So there are, in other words, there are hills to die on. There are hills to be wounded on severely, but not necessarily die on. And then there's other things that we just embrace with one another. Hills to die on. Examples. These are non-negotiables. The deity of Christ and his death as the substitutionary atonement the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, justification by faith alone, the doctrine of the Trinity, the divine inspiration of Scripture. These are just examples of hills to die on. These are non-negotiable. Others that are very important, that are non-essential necessarily to unity, are doctrines such as eschatology, or, or baptism, or church government. Now, with that said, we can have unity on these things and fellowship on these important doctrines, but not always local church membership with one another in some of these doctrines we disagree with. But we're to be united in truth. Francis Schaeffer Remember him, the Swiss theologian, had interesting attire as well. But nevertheless, he says this, 
brilliance in his, the way he puts things out there. Interesting to listen to what he had to say and to read him. He says the real chasm must be between true Bible-believing Christians and others. Not at a lesser point. The chasm is not between Lutherans and everybody else or Baptists and everybody else or Presbyterians and everybody else. The real chasm is between those who have bowed to the living God and his son, Jesus Christ, and those also, and also to the verbal propositional communication of God's word, the scriptures, and those who have not. J.C. Ryle says, Unity without the gospel is a worthless unity. It is the very unity of hell. So we are to believe in Christ, be united in Christ. Thirdly, glory in Christ. As we go back to John 17, verse 22. Glory in Christ. Short point for us before we move to our next one. The glory which you have given me, Jesus continues in his prayer, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one just as we are one. Again, the emphasis of the oneness, how strong it ought to be. How should we understand this glory mentioned here? It seems best as meaning the blessing and character of God being manifested. The glory is the ability to know God experientially and to know God personally and to have eternal life. As Christians, we're the only ones who know God in this way. We're the only ones who know God. Because we know his son, Jesus Christ. He has manifested himself in the life of believers. As Hendrickson says, they are able to say, Christ only, always living in us. And that is their glory. Christ only, always living in me. We are partakers of Christ. As 1 John 3, 2 says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, His divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. We are partakers of the riches in Christ. We have the pardon of Christ, righteousness, love, joy, knowledge, as we seek continually the wisdom of Christ. Fourthly, loved in Christ, loved in Christ. Verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as, I, as you have loved me. Again, when we see that purpose clause in there, the so that, those are very important for us as we study the word of God. 
I and them, you and me, they may be perfected in unity so that for this reason that the world may know that you, God the Father, sent me, Jesus the Son, and loved them, who? The people of God. The statement is very similar to verse 21. One part stands out. Verse 21, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Verse 23, so that the world may know that you sent me. When people are united for a cause, they can have tremendous influence, can't they? Especially when they're united for a cause that isn't isn't good, an evil cause. We've seen that before, haven't we? United in one cause, they don't even know why they're doing it. But wow, are they united in it. Consider rioting and doing all these things that they do to cities. Why are you doing this? I don't know. But they're still doing it and united in it. But united in Christ, we can have tremendous influence by God's grace, if it be his will, and in the power of the Holy Spirit. When Christians filled with the Holy Spirit are united in word and the Spirit, we can charge the gates of hell with a water pistol. A powerful influence upon this world is possible. Light shining into darkness. Does this mean everyone in the world will believe? No, we know that's not the case. Well, the question is, who is the them in the second part of this verse? Loved them. This is the people of God. Context would point to them being the elect those whom he set on his particular love. Then again, the circle closes for us once again, going back to election and those whom God has set his particular love upon. That the world may believe, that the world may know that the Father sent the Son and that God loves those who believe in his Son. The world will see the common spiritual unity of true Christians with the goal being that that would have an influence upon the world by his grace for his glory. The key phrase here, though, is in Christ. Believe in Christ, united in Christ, glory in Christ, loved in Christ. The key phrase is in Christ. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. That describes everyone in this room this morning. You're either in Christ or you're not in Christ. There's no halfway, one foot in the door in Christ. You're either in or you're out. Romans chapter 8 verse 1 tells us there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Praise God to that. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are not in Christ You are outside of Christ, and you only have condemnation upon you right now, continually. The only way for that condemnation to not fall on you is for you to be in Christ, to believe in Christ, which involves repenting of your sin, turning from the sin that God hates, and turning to Jesus Christ. Believing in Christ involves Faith in Christ, 
trusting in Jesus alone to save you from the condemnation that you deserve, to save you from your sins, to save you from destruction. Then you will be united in Christ, can glory in Christ, and then you will be loved by Christ in the way that he has loved his people. Let us pray. Father, let it be our heart's cry this day that you so loved us, you sent your son Jesus Christ to die for us, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he ascended on high, and that he will return. And at this time he is interceding for us, our Lord, you intercede for us. And let it be that we would say, all I have is Christ, and Christ is all I need. That we would believe in Christ, and that our belief in Christ would grow. That we would be united in Christ in this local body. That we would glory in Christ day in and day out, knowing that we are loved by Christ, and it had nothing to do with anything we did. All by your grace. Let us consider these things for a time in Jesus' name. Amen.